This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Hey, we are back on Let oh Your Voice God. Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. Cardi B popped that boom. Now she's pregnant on the stage. Hey. She popped that what? She, I can't say that what? on the radio. Stanley, you just managed to butcher Cardi B's entire new album. No, I with didn't. that, okay? Listen, you can't pop the, you know what, because, you know. What? Stan, what are you talking about? Not, in the song, Cardi B says, pop that punani <laughs> in the kitchen, pop that punani in a, on a couch. Uh-huh. Spread your cheeks, make the like, okay. All that right, yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll end it right there. <laughs> Thank you, Stanley. Welcome, guys, to let your voice be heard right here on WHCR ninety point three FM, the voice of Harlem. Happy Sunday, everyone. I hope you guys missed us. It's been a whole two weeks since we had a live show, and I'm very happy to be here. I've been to Memphis and back. I've been to the Promised Land, and I came back. I went to the mountain top, and I came back. Go back. <laughs> Could you see Selena climbing up to the top of a mountain? No. Anyway. She'd be snapping. Oh, my God. I'm so tired. You're right. Exactly. My stamina is not on fleek like that. But Mm -hmm. anyway, guys, um, my name is Selena Hill. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Miss Selena Hill. And, of course, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard, where we talk social issues, politics, foreign policy, a bit of pop culture and a little bit of hint of ratchet every now and then she almost said hennessy but she cut herself <laughs> off when yeah. she realized she don't actually drink i know i'm channeling stanley a little bit too much but um yeah and we do that every sunday right here on whcr from 11 a.m to 12 noon and of course we want you guys to let your voice be heard yeah by tweeting us at beheard underscore radio so yeah. i can let my voice be heard finally now okay so let me tell you what i'm feeling at this moment oh oh, oh. Why don't you tell us who you are before you tell us what you're feeling? I can never let my voice be heard. So, hello, beautiful people on the podcast. Hello, beautifuler people on Facebook Live. My name is Stanley Fritz. You can follow me on Twitter at Stan Fritz. You can also follow me on Instagram at Stan Fritz. You can even check me on Snapchat, but I deleted that app because Rihanna don't mess with that crap. So you can't look there anymore. (laughs) I was trying to make it rhyme at the end. And if you even want to support my writing, you can see me on Medium slash Stan Fritz or the defiant ones.org where he's the jet magazine beauty of the week yes that's right that's Always. my favorite part of your bio the part that's not true that well i ain't <laughs> whoa 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 Ooh, shots fired we need the shots out mm. bang 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 no no shots for that all right <laughs> um anyways my name is Alyssa fuchs and i am your political and legal correspondent and i you know talk legal to me um <laughs> Not dirty. Unless it's dirty <laughs> I legal. I love it. Talk dirty legal to Alyssa. I love it. Um, and you can find me on Facebook at <laughs> Facebook.com slash Alyssa Fuchs. That's I-L-Y-S-S-A-F-U-C-H-S. Or on Twitter at Alyssa Fuchs. Uh, or you can leave a comment on or a question or hate mail on Politically Preposterous, which is Facebook.com slash Politically Preposterous. Or at Poll Preposterous on Facebook. You know, and if you want to go out on a date with me, you could hit me up on Alyssa Fuchs, uh, Facebook.com slash Alyssa Fuchs and slide right into those DMs. Yes, slide into her DMs. Where you can then come talk legal to me. <laughs> I, lo- I love, like, Alyssa, I just love the Tinder profile Quid you just pro made. Pro. Like, I love it. So, yeah. All right, guys. So, we have a great show lined up later on in the show. We're going to be asking the question of King's legacy, his unfinished business. Are we carrying that legacy as millennials, as Gen Zers, or have we missed a mark? I mean, it's been 50 years since he was assassinated and it seems like although some things have changed a lot have remained the same or even gotten even worse
first. So we're going to talk about that. And, of course, we want you guys to let your voice be heard. But before we do that, we're going to jump into the news roundup, What? which Stanley will be leading. Yes, I will. Okay. I hope and we got some stories. We have a lot of stories. But the most important story I want to talk about is how one of my write-ups went viral. Which one, No, Stanley? thanks to you, Selena Fan. <laughs> um, it's called, When Do We Admit That We Hate Women? Oh, my God. I love that piece I liked that you too. wrote, Stanley. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It was you. so good, Stanley. I was famous for about three hours. so it What? Cool. It really went viral? Yeah. You had your 15 minutes of fame? More like six and a half. I'm hoping to get the last, what, like nine minutes at some other point. But That's you know, what she it. said. Pause. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> Selena, you <laughs> like 69, so don't try to judge us, okay? Takashi, 69. Takashi. Sutra, yeah. Kama Sutra, 69. Anyway, whatever. what was your piece about that went viral, Stanley? So I'll say that for the news roundup, but it has to be. Can you tease us a little bit? The per- you see this? <laughs> Anyways, guys, Selena wants us to, te- to tease her. Well, Selena. No. Um, <laughs> that was so creepy. I know. It really, I, I, was, I literally almost had a Me Too moment, Stanley, so it, chill. Oh, wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Chill. That's an entirely different thing. <laughs> okay. So, the piece is, I'll talk to Facebook Live because Selena doesn't like me. So, the piece talks about Fabulous and Emily and the way that we, we respond to women when they speak up about harassment or assault or just not feeling heard. And I got lots of emotions and reactions and some very nice DMs and some very aggressive DMs. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Yes. So Stanley, of course, is starting a lot of chaos on social media like he always does. But, yeah. you know, we love you for it. And obviously, people keep coming back to your Facebook page just to comment. Well, let me just say this. If you like my Facebook page, you will love the Defiant Ones, which is pretty much our radio show's opinion wing. If you want to get some opinions from people who have things to say, it's mostly just articles from me right now. But I figure someone else. Will I mean, there. I, I don't know if you, you there. are like aware of how Facebook works. I mean, it really <laughs> should just be called the Outrage Book because it's oh. like a place <laughs> where people go and post things so that other people will then comment on them and yeah. say either a I am outraged about this post for X reason or I am outraged about this story for X reason. And yeah. sure enough, somebody will show up to disagree with them, yeah. um, which will create a situation um, that. Like my page right now where causes people, something to go viral. Where people are fighting because I said I would have no problem if my son were gay, and people are losing their. And heads. that's not even a very controversial statement. It's not. It really. It shouldn't be, be in 2018. <laughs> hold on, hold on. You would be more upset if your son came out conservative. Yeah, if my son was like, "Hey, dad, I like guys." I'm like, "All right, I like fried chicken." Okay, what's the big deal? If my son said, "Hey, dad, I'm an Uncle Tom," we would have a problem. Oh wow. Yeah, that's totally different. Gay, the, the your sexual preference. Uncle Tom selling out your people. Oh, different. No, that's a huge difference. Shot, 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 shot. <laughs> yes, this is the show of shots. I love you guys. And of course, you could call us up and leave comments, chime into our conversations. The number is 212 650 6903. I'm always afraid that people can't understand Stanley's creepy voice. When you say the numbers like that, mm-hmm. so I try to say it over in a normal voice. Bye, Selena. Anyway, so we're going to go on a quick break. Don't go anywhere, guys. We have a lot to talk about, including Safari shedding real man tears, Fabulous beating up Emily B, oh. Scott Pruitt, who needs to actually resign from the EPA, and a lot more. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. 
We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz. I'm here on your podcast. Whose new nickname is Flowers. My new nickname is Flowers. I'm also here on the Facebook Live with Parapping People, and I'm here with Selena Hill and Alyssa Fuchs. And our conversation today is going to be amazing. We are going to be talking about Dr. King's legacy. But before we get to the main event, we do have to get to some undercards. What's the undercard? Well, today it's the news roundup, and the news roundup is where we talk about things that made us laugh, cry, curse, flip a table, or maybe get some flowers. Go get Janelle's new album, guys. And I want to talk about some news stories that got me pretty fired up. But the first one we want to touch on is one that Alyssa and I were particularly fired up about, and it is Scott Pruitt, who was the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. And Scott Pruitt has been under fire for a lot of things, but we just found out that he was staying in a lobbyist apartment in D.C., paying $50 a month. The same lobbyist who held a fundraiser while he was living there, and he also gave all kinds of breaks to via the EPA. Wait, wait, it gets better than that because then Donald Trump apparently seems to think that $50 a month is the market rate rent for an apartment in D.C. So if you're living in D.C. and you're paying $2,000 a month for an apartment, call us up and let us know that uh, $50 a month is not the market rate rent. Um, But but not just the rent. Um, Scott Pruitt's security team currently consists of 19 agents, a fleet of 19 vehicles. Um, They have to spend money on maintenance, gas, training, um, round-the-clock security. Uh, apparently, he also spent $2 million a year um, just on the security costs, and he likes to take lots and lots of personal trips. He racked up over $200,000 in travel costs last year. Uh, on one trip to Italy, uh, he spent more than $30,000 in private security detail, um, and he has also been criticized for taking private and military flights instead of flying commercial. And, of course, when people at uh, you know the White House like John Kelly voiced concerns about this, um, Donald Trump tweets out things like, and I quote, while security spending was somewhat more than his predecessor, Scott Pruitt has received death threats because of his bold actions at the EPA. Uh, what? And record... The clean water room? Yeah, he says, record clean air and water while saving U.S. billions of dollars. Rent was about market rate. Travel expenses, okay. Scott is doing a great job. Uh, so first off, the president does not know how to speak English. Um, and second off, uh, clearly does not understand that destroying the environment is not record clean air and water um, and that when he spends more cost than his predecessor that doesn't mean that travel expenses are okay while you yell at the black man for spending too much well, money <laughs> no no and like on top of that the lies that Scott Pruitt has been saying to defend himself have been bizarre like for instance he said and I quote this was like an Airbnb situation <laughs> no it was not like you paid $50 a night to sleep in a lobbyist's counter like that's clearly horrible and then when he was saying that oh he had to fly he had to fly first class because of you know security like he's national defense or something but then every time he paid for a flight ticket he flew coach so if you were that concerned about your security why aren't you always flying um, first class he only flew first class when it was on our dime the taxpayers so honestly like it's it's over for Scott Pruitt, and I think that Chief of Staff John Kelly is also trying to push him out, but obviously we see Trump tweeting his support for him. Yeah, well, John Kelly's going to get fired, too. You know, it's called White, <laughs> it's called, it's called White House Survi- Survivor, White House Edition. Seriously. And very, very rarely do you survive. So we do have Larry on the line, and he has a news story that I heard about, but I had actually forgotten. Do you guys remember the um, photo that came out a couple of years ago of the black kid crying, hugging the cop? 
Yes, I vaguely, I do. Good. Larry's going to tell you what happened to him. Larry, let your voice be heard. Well, I'm not sure if that's the same story. But you know what? Anyway, it might be. I don't know. Well, anyway, there's this couple. There's this couple that was from Texas. They they adapted six children, six black children. It was a, a, a Caucasian lesbian couple. So now they've been investigated down in Texas um, for child abuse. So they absconded up to Michigan um, to avoid the investigation and more um, interrogation. And in the course of the, the heat being on them, they drove the, the truck, the van, off the cliff in, in Michigan, killing all six children and killing themselves. Now, this is one thing I'm, I'm, I'm hearing. It seems like I'm hearing, like, lesbians, gays can do no wrong. And I'll be honest with you, anybody that wants to um, cut off their own penis and, and, and clip their own nipples and stuff, that's a, I wouldn't want those kind of people even around my children, much less raise my children. How do you trust somebody like that? You know, you heard me all the way up until... Well, first of all, well, Larry, thank you for letting your voice be heard. As the resident gay person, I'll respond, Larry, just like there's bad people in every group, there are bad black people, there are bad white people, there are bad, bad Hispanic people, there are bad straight people, there are bad gay people. Um, the identity of the people is less important than the fact that we have bad people in this country that do bad things. Um, there have been plenty of straight couples and straight people that have killed their children. Um, there was a woman a couple years back who was a perfectly straight woman in a couple with her husband and they drowned two children um, when she rode into a van with the kids in the van. So I think it's less important that you're right. Um, there isn't, there shouldn't be a thing that we think gay people can go, do no wrong. Um, gay people can do wrong just like straight people can. Um, but I think we have to focus more on the fact that we really have screwed up people in this country and whether they're gay or straight is sort of irrelevant. And let me just be clear. I'm going to use another news story to kind of like bring this up yeah but we really need to get rid of this toxic masculinity and this toxic yes. homophobia there was a man in alabama who made his girl who who had his girlfriend have sex with his autistic 12 year old son because he was worried the kid was going to be gay what, what kind of, yeah like what is wrong with people what like and now he's going to spend life in prison and so is his girlfriend good burn in hell why would you do that it's horrible and the kid blames himself because we have these unnatural, unhealthy, disrespectful interpretations of gay, lesbian, transgender, and queer people. And because of that, we take our own mess and we put it on our kids and we put it on other people. I'd be very happy if to see same-sex couples raising children. You know why? Because statistically, they're better parents, they do better all financially, and they choose to have kids. You had to go through a lot of stuff to adopt children. I'm very happy to have people from the LGBTQ community adopt children. Holy crap. Those those were great points, Stanley. And uh, one thing that you touched on and I want to expand on is just this sense of like hyper masculinity, which we know plays a major role and why, you know, particularly like some men or black men, especially in the black community, um, feel very homophobic in a lot of ways. And I know that like black masculinity is definitely another issue that came up, particularly around the fabulous and Emily B story that happened. And I know you wrote that extensive piece on it. So tell yes. us so you know it's just that we have to get to we're raising all these boys 
to become broken men, more or less. And the way that we're doing that is we're telling them they can't feel. We're telling them they can't cry. We get mad at them if they even show any kind of quote-unquote femininity. So then you have these people who are growing up to only be a certain way, and then they're getting extremely violent. And then when they act this way, we either get very upset and bash them, or we try to protect them at the expense of women. And, you know, my article, what I was just trying to say is that we've got to get to a point where, A, we're not raising these broken men, but then, B, we have to start believing women. Because the way that we push back on women for just speaking their truths makes me feel like there's some kind of resentment there. Like, and particularly when I was following the story after TMZ leaked that footage of Fabulous threatening Emily B's parents, no, her father, and then, like, um, sort of, like, coming at her in a very aggressive way, I saw a lot of people like, why was Emily B filming this? Why yeah. was Emily B doing the most? Like, people were, like, literally victim-blaming on social media with no shame and, like, not even knowing what they're doing and how, like, not even seeing the victim in this story. Right. No, and, I, you know, there's something else I wanted to address that's come up within this, which is the idea yeah. of innocence until proven guilty. And, and... Here's the thing. As a criminal defense lawyer, I always believe that somebody is innocent until proven guilty when it comes to criminal charges in a court of law. Meaning, if you have been charged with a crime, you are entitled the presumption of innocence in a court of law. But that doesn't mean you're necessarily entitled that presumption of innocence in the public sphere, in the, you know, what we call the court of public opinion. Um, nor does it mean that just because you are entitled to a presumption of innocence that the woman may not be telling the truth and so sometimes it's really hard for people people to be able to keep those two somewhat confusing and um, i should say conflicting ideas in mind at the same time yeah. and retain the ability to function but it, it it remains to be said and it's important to be said that you can say look we believe fabulous's girlfriend 100 and we believe she's telling the truth and we believe women generally when they say they have been assaulted or domestically abused by somebody but at the same time when it comes to criminal charges against that person, we believe they should be entitled to the presumption of innocence. That does not mean that we do not believe the woman. It just means that we want to see that constitutional standard upheld when it comes to the court of law. And so I think it's really, really important that we understand that those two things seem to conflict, but they can be, you can hold those two ideas in mind at the same time um, and still retain your ability to function uh, in a normal manner. No, absolutely. And I just think that, you know, thank you for just breaking down um, the legality behind it. But I just think that, you know, our country, our society has a horrible history of victim blaming, especially when it comes to women, yeah. especially women of color. And it's something that's almost normalized. Like yeah. if a man raises his hand to a woman or, you know, it's always, well, why was that woman out of line? Like I was even taught some of these things as a child. Like, you, you know, and it's it, it's hard. Um, it's a vicious cycle. But I think that like with education, and just understanding boundaries and understanding what's right and what's wrong, we can definitely like over overcome this and like move past it. And and we need to because I mean it's 2018, guys. We like victim blaming needs to finally come to an end. I actually have a story I want to bring up. I know we have a lot of stuff to talk about, but did you guys hear about the man who on um, by the name of Saheed Basel? Yes, we did. Yeah. So Saeed Basel was a man who was shot ten times by the NYPD in Brooklyn. On Wednesday afternoon, he had a um, a shower rod in his hand, I think it was, and they said he was pointing it. The cops jumped out of the car and shot him and killed him immediately, and it spurred protests all across the borough and the cities all this week. Yeah, and we're going to talk more about that later on when we start discussing Dr. King's legacy uh, and just really taking a hard look on what has changed and what hasn't changed. Because, again, we still keep seeing black men on unarmed being shot down 
literally on the day that Martin Luther King was shot down by another white man. So we're definitely going to delve into those details a little later, Stanley. Yes? Yeah, I was going to ask if we have time for one more story. Um, real you quick, don't. Stanley, because that teaser, now yeah. you got to tell us. 30 seconds, what is it? Just Did you guys see Bernie Sanders and what he said about Barack Obama? Where he said the Democratic Party has been a failure for the last 15 years, and people don't see that because you had this charismatic, bright guy um, named Obama. But, you know, outside of that, Democratic Democratic Party has failed. Well, that's true. What's no. the controversy in that? Well, he's he's connecting Barack Obama as a failure, and he did it on the 50th well, anniversary of Dr. King's death. I don't necessarily see the him calling Barack Obama a failure. I think that it was more of like a masquerade. Like, we, we celebrated the election of Obama so much that we forgot to hold the Democratic Party accountable, I think. Yeah, but then also, who was leader of the Democratic Party when it happened? Right. I mean, I, I would also disagree with the characterization of the Democratic Party as a complete failure. You know, people like to look at the National Party as a whole. But if you look locally, you know, and really all politics is local, there are a lot of Democrats at the local level doing a lot of really, really good things, even though nationally speaking, the Democrats maybe haven't done so well in terms of winning elections or pushing their national platform. So I sort of take issue with that characterization as well, because I don't think it is the full truth. And also, just to close it out, what has Bernie Sanders and Socialists done in the last 15 years? Fair enough. Yeah, good question. On that note, we do have to take another quick break, but don't go anywhere, guys. When we come back, we're going to talk about Dr. King's unfinished business. Have we carried his legacy or missed the mark? This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Shout out to everyone who is watching us via Facebook Live and shout out to all those who are listening via podcast. We appreciate you guys. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with my co-host Stanley Fritz and Alyssa Fuchs. And it's time to talk about Dr. King's legacy. Now, it was the evening of April 4th, 1968, when the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stepped outside of his room at the Lorraine Motel, Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. He leaned over the balcony and asked the saxophonist to play his favorite song, Take my hand, precious Lord, at a rally that he was supposed to lead later that night. And that's when a white man across the street raised his rifle and shot Dr. King in the head at 6.01 p.m. Central Time. Now, 50 years later, I stood in that very same location where Dr. King was assassinated at the Lorraine Martel, uh, which has since been preserved and transformed into the National Civil Rights Museum. And during my visit... To Memphis last week, I listened to uh, people like Reverend Jesse Jackson recount the moment where he watched King die. I also heard from leaders like Reverend William Barber, legendary activists like Congressman John Lewis and Reverend James Lawson, who worked with King, and Memphis officials who all expressed the fact that King's life, his, his life work is very far from done. Now, when he died, he was crusading on behalf of poor sanitation workers in Memphis who were fighting for higher wages and fair treatment. King was also organizing the Poor People's Campaign to advocate for fair wages, better jobs and employment training, all while using his platform to denounce the Vietnam War. 
But sadly, 50 years after his murder, America is still very far from his dream. So in today's episode of Let Your Voice Be Heard, we're reflecting on Dr. King's life, his legacy, and the progress that has been made in wake of the 50th anniversary of his assassination. And as millennials and Gen Zers, we'll be talking about the wins and the losses that have since been um, occurring as we have stepped up to carry his legacy and fight for equality in the world. But although we have a lot of progress when it comes to like LGBTQ rights and like the women's rights movement, uh, it seems like the clock sort of turned back time when it comes to like the protection of immigrants or African-Americans, particularly black and brown bodies when it comes to police brutality. Uh, And now we also have a white well, I'm not going to call the president a white supremacist, but the white supremacists, white supremacists have um, overwhelmingly supported this president, and he has hesitated and to denounce their support, uh, the KKK, and said a number of uh, problematic um, comments. Very fine people. Yes, very fine people. So we're going to talk about that, guys, because there was a lot of progress that has been made, but not enough. And the question is, has progress really been made or did Dr. King die in vain? And now before we get to this very special guest who we have called in on the line, I want to get you guys' reaction to just Dr. King's legacy and what it really means to you especially as a millennial who is very active in progressive circles. Um, so I'll go first. As a civil rights lawyer, Dr. King's legacy is, means uh, an immense amount to me. I actually have a Dr. Uh, King quote tattooed on my body, uh, which is the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, and I've done you know an immense amount of reading about Dr. King, um, his own works and, and works about him. Um, and I feel that he drives the you know, impetus to seek justice uh, for me every day. Um, And sometimes when I go into work and I'm feeling really down about uh, being stressed out about my job and about all the things that are going on in the world and and the constant, um, you know, you know, uh, things that we're seeing with the uh, shootings of um, unarmed black men. And um, it's it's the words of Dr. King that keep me motivated to keep working um, to do civil rights work. Um, and so I think that he has had a huge impact on my life and on the path I have taken in my career. Stanley. So Dr. King is someone who I grew to appreciate. I used to be hardcore Malcolm X and I don't want to hear anything about um, Dr. King. And over the last three years, I've really gained a new appreciation for him and respect for who he was and what he believed. And, you know, I'd like to believe that, like, my political philosophy aligns pretty close to his. Um, You know, Dr. King was far ahead of his time, and the places that he was at towards the end of his life is where people are just starting to trickle around in this day and age. When we're talking about poor people campaign, when we're talking about universal basic income, when we're talking about um, the need to stop prioritizing property over people, Dr. King was talking about this in 1965, 66, 67, and 68, right before he died. So he has been someone who's been very influential for me. I go to his books a lot. For, you know, for guidance and just like to kind of like stay on the right course. And, you know, I'm really inspired by his, you know, nonviolence, direct action organizing tactics. Well, I mean, and I'm glad you brought that up because we are definitely in a political climate where immigrants are under attack. 
there's a rise of Islamophobia. There's a struggle to protect black and brown bodies. Just a few minutes ago, Stanley brought up the uh, man, the mentally ill man who was shot unarmed in Brooklyn on the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated. So, I mean, the question is, are we doing a good job of honoring Dr. King's legacy, considering all that's happening now? Stanley? You know, it depends on what spaces you're in. I think that if Dr. King were alive today, he'd be happy about a lot of things, but he'd be frustrated about even more things. Um, it, I always find it very problematic and frustrating when people who I know would hate Dr. King with all their hearts try to quote him or use him as a standard for how we should be protesting or be, or be vocal. Uh, you know, honestly, he always talked about the arc of justice, and he said it bends towards the righteous, but you have to keep working it. I think that we are honoring his legacy by fighting. Um, I think that he'd be a little sad about some of the setbacks, but he'd understand. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I think that we, you know, all the work that we've been doing is very much in line with the work that he was doing. Um, but I, I would also agree that he would be disappointed. I mean, because some of the things that he was talking about in 1963 could be said with equal force today. And while I wish that we had the time to read or play the audio from the entire letting from, letter from a Birmingham jail, unfortunately we don't. And I know we'll try and embed a link to that into the podcast. Um, but one of the things that he was talking about was about protesting. Um, and about, you know, laws that are just and unjust. And, you know, when he tried to point out that uh, when he advocates evading or defying laws, you know, he was doing so because some laws are just and some laws aren't. And he talks about, you know, in Germany, everything that Hitler did was legal. Um, And then he goes on to say one of the most important things about how disappointed he is in white moderates and that he had hoped that, he says, quote, I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exists for the purpose of establishing justice. And when they fail in this purpose, purpose, they become dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. And I think that could be said today. Um, And so that is why I think he would be disappointed that there are still so many white moderates that just don't seem to get it. But I think he would be hopeful that there are now a lot more white people that do get it. Absolutely. I mean, for all the hope that King advocated for, I think that he would be I think he's like turning his grave, honestly. I mean, if if we look at the statistics today, black Americans make much less money than white counterparts. Black people are still unemployed at nearly twice the rate as white people today. And there's a lot of other statistics that are just disheartening. Like, for instance, white family wealth is nearly seven times greater than black family wealth. And we know that Dr. King spent a lot of time talking about economic justice for black people. He said towards the end of his life that in order to achieve achieve real freedom and justice we need equality we need economic equality in particular and on top of that black people are more than twice as likely to live in poverty today this is not the 1960s those statistics are from today and on top of that I opened up this segment talking about Memphis, right, guys? I spent some time there last week, uh, especially in honor of um, Dr. King's, the 50th anniversary of his assassination, and I learned a lot about Memphis. I spoke to a lot of great people, and one of the things that I saw firsthandedly was the poverty in Memphis. So Memphis has the highest poverty rate in the nation, and I saw that. 64% of the city is black, and more than one-third of the black residents live below the poverty line. And 
we know where there's poverty, there's crime. Violent crime is so high in Memphis that Forbes lists Memphis as the fourth most dangerous city in America. On top of that, I read that the city specifically courts companies to come to Memphis by bragging about how low the wages are so that basically they can get a good deal. So you have even the workers who, you know, went to school, are educated and are trying to make uh, an honest wage, but they can't because the wages are so low. And so, you know, and they're not able to organize. And Martin Luther King was very much in favor of unions. Um, But I know we have a great guest on the line as well. Right. And I wanted to get to her. Her name is Rachel Knox. She is a woman who was born and raised in Memphis. She ran for city council in Memphis. And now she is the current thriving arts and culture program officer for the Hyde Family Foundation. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hey, so much. Thanks to meet you guys. Yes, yes. So, Rachel, um, you know, we talked about, well, I gave some statistics about what's happening in Memphis today, 50 years after Martin Luther King's death. And I wanted you to sort of talk about the pain that your city has experienced and carried in wake of Dr. King's death and how you think his death has particularly impacted the black community. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think with every city that has um one of these types of very tragic, highly visible events, there is a certain level of pain that is carried with the residents. I think what is different in, say, a Memphis versus a Dallas is that Dr. King was here specifically to help the sanitation, uh, sanitation workers strike for better wages, um, which was um, precipitated after um, the the death of two sanitation workers who were trying to seek shelter from the rain, were not allowed to be in the same space as white people, and wound up getting crushed in their um, garbage truck. And so many, I think, black Memphians specifically feel personally responsible for Dr. King's death, not because we killed him, but because it was our efforts to try and organize, to try and create this radically different vision for Memphis to try and allow people to live their lives with dignity, regardless of whether they were a sanitation worker or a teacher or any sort of worker that was providing a service for the city, for them to have the opportunity to live um, life and life more abundantly. And so I think that one of the things that's very telling about this is that, um, Older people who are around during the assassination of Dr. King say that Memphis rose in place. And I think it was in many, in many ways a defense mechanism to try to kind of save us from ourselves. And one of the things that um, we say even vernacularly, I, I mean, I'm 29, and I've, I've been guilty of saying that in Memphis we killed King, even though I wasn't around during that time. My mom was, my grandparents obviously but it's like something that is just embedded in the pain of Memphis, and there's also this level of shame that is associated with that. But I think what is good about it in the year of 2018 is that we have younger people who are saying um, this isn't acceptable anymore, freezing in place to try and keep ourselves safe and to try and back the shame of our death does not do any justice to King's legacy. Right. Rachel, do you think that, you know, as you guys, you know, you said you've been carrying around this shame and this burden because King was killed in Memphis, uh, even though it's not your fault, obviously, but do you think that that shame and that pain has contributed to some of the, I guess, the lack of progress in the city of Memphis itself? And, and like, has it contributed to the poverty rate in any way and things like that? 
Um, I would say yes and no. Um, I would say that yes, if you are in some ways frozen in place, then you are not fighting and you let poverty happen. You, not, not poverty, but policies happen to you that contribute to poverty um, and uh, economic uh, injustice. And so um, Memphis is not unlike many cities um, across the United States. So we had, you know, Dr. King's death, and then, you know, we had white flight and we had annexation trying to keep the city um, afloat and uh, stretching ourselves thin. We had um, a crack epidemic and the war on drugs that hollowed out our communities. Um, and so even a study that was produced recently um, at the Civil Rights Museum and the University of Memphis shows that we have really high incarceration rates, and we have a lot of men who are missing out of the system, whether they're in prison or not, because even if you get out of jail, you cannot enter the system again to get to work to contribute positively. So um, I would say, yeah, absolutely. It, it has had an effect 50 years later on where we are as a city. Absolutely, Rachel. You know, I, I want to thank you so much for your time for calling in. And, you know, just really briefly, uh, we only have about 10 to 20 seconds. If you can just talk about what is being done to overcome the tragedy of King's death that still haunts the city and what role you in particular are playing in a few seconds. Sure. Um, I think right now the city of Memphis, in the sense of its citizens, are taking a much larger stance and a much bolder stance on um, how we're going to contribute to the city's economic well-being. We see things that are empowering black, uh, black organizations such as Memphis Black Restaurant Week. And in my own work, we're a philanthropic organization. And Dr. King says, you know, philanthropy is commendable, but it must not let the philanthropists overlook the causes of economics that make philanthropy necessary. And I think we are taking a critical look at how we're investing and what are the things that we can help do to mitigate the economic circumstances that make it necessary for us to do our jobs. Thank you so much, Rachel. We, Rachel, we definitely appreciate you for calling in and for the, all the work that you're doing in Memphis to make it a better city. Thank you so much, guys. We do need to take another quick break, but don't go away. When we come back, we're going to talk about what if King was still here? Would he support Black Lives Matter? Would he have really changed the world? Would we have continued to follow him and his teaching? Because he was very hated when he died. Don't go anywhere. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. I like million dollar deals. Where's my pen? I'm signing. I like Oh, I like it like that. I be drinking Doucet. I like it like that. I had some Doucet on last week's Saturday. That didn't rhyme. Let's move on. Anyways, guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHC are the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, Facebook Live, this is Stanley Fritz. How you guys doing this Sunday morning? Stanley, if and we don't drink your style because them MFers are racist. Exactly. Aces, even though I can't afford that. If you're on Ustream, what up, stream team? And on the podcast, I appreciate you. Keep listening. My name is Stanley Fritz. I'm here with Selena Hill and Alyssa Fuchs, and we are talking about Dr. King's legacy. But instead of hearing me talk spicy, I'll pass it on to the Queens, Leonce. All right, Stanley. All right, yeah, we're back. So we just got <laughs> off the line with Rachel Knox. She is uh, a woman who was born and raised in Memphis, and she's doing a lot of great activist work there in the city to rebuild 50 years after King's death. But, you know, the question that I posed right before we went on break was, uh, would what would have happened if King was alive today? Would we have supported him? And, you know, I'm going to um, throw it to Stanley first because oh. if we talk about... Let's talk about the, the era, the time right before King died. 
Mm-hmm. He was not particularly popular in black circles and definitely not amongst white circles, even yeah. like white Democrats and liberals. People were not supporting him. Yeah, so the Congressional Black Caucus had pretty much turned their back on him because of his anti-war stance. So had pretty much every other white liberal and LBJ who had had them pick up their surveillance of him because they thought he was a communist and he didn't trust King to not make him look bad on the Vietnam War, which was a disaster. Um, Black Panthers and like some of the other activists who decided that nonviolence, passive resistance was not the way to go had pretty much tuned him out to the point that he had actually been booed off a stage and even had things thrown at him when he was trying to speak to a crowd. Dr. King was not a popular man. After his death, 68% of Americans, white people, felt that he brought his assassination on himself. It is only recently that we have nice things being said about King. Ronald Reagan, when he was governor, said, when you talk a certain way, you invite violence on yourself. And then when he was president, said, Dr. King was one of those people that always activated people to want to become violent. He got what he deserved. He had to walk that comment back. So a lot of these people who are now saying they loved him did not do so back then, and they probably would now. Alyssa, if he was alive now, do you think he would have the support of Black Lives Matter? Or rather, would he support Black Lives Matter? I think he would. And here's why. Um, Just to give you some numbers. um, 30. um, Okay, I'm sorry. Um, People of color make up 30 percent of the United States population. They account for 60 percent of those people that are in prison. The prison population has grown exponentially since 1975 and uh, by 700 percent. And one in every 15 African-American men are incarcerated. One in three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetimes. Black men are three times more likely to be searched during a traffic stop than white motorists. And African-Americans are twice as likely to be arrested and almost four times as likely to experience the use of force during encounters with the police. Students of color face harsher punishments in their schools than their white peers, leading to a higher number of youth incarcerated. Black and Hispanic students represent more than 70% of those involved in school-related arrests. African-Americans make up two-fifths and Hispanics one-fifth of confined youth today. According to recent data by the Department of Education, African-American students are arrested at far more often than their white classmates. The data shows that 96,000 students were arrested and Sorry, 242,000 of those referred to law enforcement during the school year. 70% of those were black. African-American youth have higher rates of juvenile incarceration and more likely to be sentenced to adult prison. And I can go on and on and on, but I'll I'll end with this statistic, which is um, the number of women incarcerated and has increased by over 800%. And women women of color are disproportionately represented within those numbers. Um, There are more and more and more and more facts about this that I can continue to go on and on and on for the next 10 minutes minutes. I will not do that. Uh, but for those reasons, I absolutely believe that Martin Luther King would support the Black Lives Matter movement um, to the extent that he was not able to have rectified some of these issues had he have survived, had he have survived. Right. Well, I mean, well, let's just let's just take account of it. Um, I, I was watching a documentary last night and they were saying that King being 39 years old, um, you know, he was considered almost old in activist circles. We know that a lot of, you know, young people are always at the helm of change and movement in um, whatever generation. Right. So him being 39, there was also that disconnect between what was happening um, during the late 1960s. And then we saw like in the 1970s where people were like, why do black people have to be nonviolent why do we have to take this approach when no one is telling white communities to be nonviolent when they're throwing bricks at dr king and other activists when they're saying white power and saying die n-word die i mean no one was telling them don't be nonviolent but king was like we must 
Because King believed that. So a lot of people want to criticize Pat, like the Kenyan nonviolence movement and that to be used as a tactic to fight for justice. And they called it passive and they called it weak. But Dr. King said to be able to have a nonviolent movement and be disciplined in that was an ultimate strength because it meant that you were able to love your enemy, not in the soft, loving way, the way that I love Selena or Alyssa as my, as my like siblings, not in the way that I love Marilyn as like the love of my life, but in the way that God loves people in a way that inspires themselves and despite what they're doing, because God is able to take away the evilness from the person. And that's what King wants you to do. That takes a level of discipline that cannot even be articulated. Mm. And there's a reason Dr. King thought that was the way to go. Because also, are we really going to win a war against white people? White people have rooms full of guns and bombs. And they control everything. Go ahead and try to get into war with them. And it was a tactical decision. Right. And now, I mean, we're actually bringing this conversation to a close, but I want to get you guys final thoughts, particularly on this question. Right. So uh, another thing that King was advocating for uh, towards the end of his life was for, and I quote, a radical reconstruction of American society. Right. And another reason why he was not too liked amongst the establishment and even like status quo Democrats was because he was starting to lean even more and more to the left. To the point where he was becoming what they call radicalized. And he was like, we need to reconstruct American society, not just black and white, but class wise. Right. And, and that's a big step. Lisa, what did he mean by that? And could we ever get to that point? I, I mean, I think we can get to that point, but I think it's going to take a lot of work. And it's really the work of white people and, and especially, um, you know, liberal white people um, talking to their friends, talking to their family members. Of course, there is going to be a subset of raggedy white racist people in this country, no matter how far we progress. But at the same time, there is a large number of white moderates that just they in theory care about these issues and say they're for racial justice. But then they make problematic comments. They say problematic things or they do nothing in the face of injustice. Um, and so I think it's really important that, you know, people like myself and other white activists um, Talk to your friends. Talk to your family members. Have conversations with people in your family that claim to be against injustices, but that make problematic comments that uh, in the way only white moderates could um, or that just stay silent in the face of injustice when they should be speaking up. Because at the end of the day, white supremacy is a white person problem. And so we need to be the people to deal with that. And that is the way that we are going to move forward in this country on in terms of race. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that it definitely takes white people especially those who call themselves allies uh they need to take it a step further by actually organizing in their white communities like you know those communities better than anyone else and because of your white privilege you can actually go into those community stations and centers go into those schools and start educating people on what racial justice actually looks like and what the and, and talk about the history the ugly history that we have here in America and what your ancestors played in that and how that mentality of racism is still being passed so yes white allies Love it when you march with us at Black Lives Matter. Love it when you tweet about us. But literally go into your communities and start making a difference. Stanley? So I have a slightly different message. I agree with everything you guys just said. But I think what people need to understand was King's, like, 
ultimate message and really the message that he had pretty much perfected for himself in his final days, it is that racism is not just a thing that hurts black people. It is not. It hurts all people. It particularly hurts white people because that that anger that you feel, that frustration, that superiority that you feel over one group of people or multiple groups of people is blocking you from seeing your own blessings, is blocking you from from voting for policies that will help you. It is blocking you from being a whole person. It is blocking you from experience whole things. And while it's blocking you from doing all these things, the corporations, the millionaires, the billionaires, the people with all the money, power, and access are getting richer and richer. And they are taking more and more from all of us. And you can't even see it. You can't get past that because someone told you a long time ago that this person was not as good as you because they were black. And if we want to be liberated in a real way, we have to come together and we have to see the humanity in each other. And we have to decolonize our minds and our hearts to create a multiracial movement to put an end to the gentrification of our lives, our dollars and our existence. Thank you for that, guys. And I'm just going to wrap up the show. Uh, I just had this thought, like, especially when Stanley was speaking about um, how King was so inspired by his faith. And he told uh, black people, people of color, the oppressed, do not stoop as low as to hate your enemies and to hate your oppressor. And it almost reminded me of that. uh, It almost reminded me of when Jesus was on the cross. And as he was being killed, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And basically what King was prophesizing and what Jesus was talking about, especially in that part of the Bible, was using love as a weapon to combat hate. And I think that what we do as millennials and Gen Zers, we're professing and living that love. Like we love one another. We love uh, people in the Islamic community. We love people in the LGBTQ um, community. And we're all coming together out of love to fight against oppression. That was King's message. That is King's legacy. And if we continue to carry it out by doing just that, then we can bring the dream that he hoped for into full fruition. And I just want to give a shout out to all the people who are. The people, the athletes on the field like Colin Kaepernick and all those who are taking the knee, you're living King's legacy. The never again activists, student activists who are leading the anti-gun reform, I mean, excuse me, the pro-gun reform marches, you guys are living King's legacy. Everyone who is fighting and speaking out against the killing of Stephon Clark and every other unarmed black or brown person that was murdered by the hands of police, you are, we are living King's legacy. And on that note, I just want to say thank you guys for listening and chiming in to let your voice be heard today. Continue to support us because we are supporting the issues and the stigmas, the stereotypes, everything that you guys care about, we care about. We're fighting those isms. So by supporting us, we'll support you. And the best way you can support us is by leaving a donation on patreon.com slash beheardradio. Again, that's patreon.com slash beheardradio. On that note, thank you again, guys, for listening. And we'll see you again next week.